right? That was fun. I love that video. My favorite part of the video is uh, when the dude is playing the bass, because it's spelled like bass, you know, like bass. It always confused me when I was a kid, you know. But anyway, I, I like that, um, the puns like that. Um, so I have uh, the pleasure of preaching to you guys this morning. Um, and um, as I was reminded this morning, um, so I did set up today, I led worship today, and now I'm preaching today. And Matt did that for three years. And so <laughs> already I am feeling extremely exhausted. So uh, bear with me, but it's, it's going to be a fun ride as we go through 2 Corinthians. And we're going to be starting at verse 11. Um, so we are all part of a family. Uh, uh, we've read our identity this morning, and that's what we're about here. But just like the song we just heard, our family, our family in Christ is vast. Uh, and I think our nuclear uh, families are a good representation of that, and I'm going to tell you about my nuclear family, um, a little story. So there are disagreements within our families, and there are things that can rub us the wrong way and potentially annoy us, uh, just like with other people here in the church, but especially in my family, where um, Marley is a good example of this. Uh, my daughter and her sister Lenny. So Lenny comes to me, she, she comes to me, she's crying. She is just so, like, distraught and in tears, and, and I'm asking her, I'm like, what is wrong, Lenny? Why are you crying with all this uh, emotion? And she said, because my, my sister told me that she was not going to play with me ever again. <laughs> it's okay to laugh because it's kind of uh, a thing, but I don't think it was like she comes to us, she's so distraught, um, and, and it was a real issue for her. It was a real sense of her being disconnected from her family member. Now, what is the reality of the situation between the sisters? I mean, the reality is that there's absolutely no way that Marley could keep her word in this, right? Because they have to be in the house with each other for at least 18 years. They've got to get along somehow. And there's no way, primarily because of their relationship to one another, that this could even be possible in the first place. They are blood relatives. Now, our church family is a different animal in a way. We are family with many nuclear families, but we are all joined together by one father. We are blood-bought relatives. I know that this analogy may break down, uh, but the point is reconciliation is going to happen if we are a part of the family. Just like my daughters reconciled shortly after, albeit sometimes very selfishly, but when they are again unified by the prodding of their loving father, they can then begin to worship their Barbies together. So, so questions. So who are we in this family? What role do we play? And what is our mission? Today we'll be focusing on the text, um, 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll start in verse 11. I'll go ahead and read it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. I'm sorry, I skipped the verse. I've been doing that this morning. For the love of Christ controls us. So I'm starting in verse 14. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, 
we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. A dear God, you are holy, you are righteous, and you are just. God, help us to see from the scripture that you have given us this great ministry of reconciliation to you that we can use to mend broken relationships between one another and more, more importantly, mend the relationship of the lost who are in unright standing with you. God, I pray that you give me the words to speak and that your word prevails throughout this entire day. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. So, after reading this, um, I, my first point is to boast persuasively in Christ, knowing his love. Paul is giving us two things here that are seemingly at odds with one another. First, he is saying, have fear, a fear in the Lord, and then he's going into like a persuasion, and then he kind of talks about boasting a little bit in the first section here. At first glance, I really didn't get it. Uh, Aren't we supposed to be relinquishing or, or even combating pride at every turn? And in what way are we supposed to take pride? And, and who are we supposed to take pride in? Is, is this in the things that are seen, as Paul alludes to above? Is there an appearance that is the matter? The thing here, Paul is most likely referring to the fact that some of the ministers in Corinth, they're using things such as appearance to seek recognition on these aspects. And using them as if they were inspired by God himself. And the boasting, I found out, that Paul is referring to isn't a boasting in self. This is a boasting in Christ, in the changed heart of his redeemed people. The outworking of this, he is telling the people in Corinth to take pride in Paul, in Paul himself. He said, we are commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. The outworking of this is basically he is their leader, and it is because he is persuasive. He is engaging in evangelism, and his faithfulness in his ministry is a thing that they are supposed to boast in and even imitate. He does this in a self-controlled way, as he says, in a right mind. But we should desire leaders that are persuasive with the gospel, It is what the family of God needs to hear. Understand, though, that if you don't want to hear the gospel, then you will not be persuaded by the gospel. They seek to persuade you with. I think all of this is set forth with a goal. The goal being that we are not boasting in the outward appearance, but in the heart. The heart is of the matter is the purpose and the goal that Paul is driving to. The heart is at the center of everything. 
What should our hearts be resting in? What should be in control? Well, I mean, we all know the answer. I mean, our, it should be resting in the love of Christ. Paul says next that it is the love of Christ that controls him. Paul tells us that he is so controlled by Christ's love that there is no other course of action open to him but to pursue his ministry. Prior to Damascus, Paul was ruled by hate. We all know the story of Paul, you know, Saul becoming Paul, right? And that's what I'm talking about here, is that there is no, um, that the hate for Christians, so he was consumed by this hate for the Christians, but now the controlling power is Christ's love. The love of Christ should control us, and it is in his love, not ours, that we can boldly boast and persuade. So he says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might, li- might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is how hatred Malice, the malice of sinful people who live for themselves can be reconciled. It's with love and the love that there is in Christ. The one crucified upon the tree was indeed accursed. In this specific verse, I think Paul realizes this, that that it was because Christ bore the curse of punishment of sin in the place of all people. There is no power so great, no motivation to do the ministry as an understanding and a knowledge that someone loves you. Right? We could think about that. Motivations. Someone loves us and is equipping us to do this. And, and it's almost like it's a controlling power in our life. How is this controlling power, this love, how is Christ's love the controlling power in your life? Do you feel his love? Do you see his love throughout Scripture? Do you know him deeply enough to know that he loves you? What does this love power affect? in our lives? How are we to interact with the family as called us into with this power? Do you even grasp the love of Christ? I think that's a a big question, and it's a big question in my heart, and it's a big question in my daughter's hearts, too. I had a good conversation with my daughters the other night as I was putting them to bed, we always do this. Uh, I know I bring them up a lot, but they're pretty much the sanctifying effort that God has placed in my life to, to make me see my sin more clearly um, and humble me. And I had a pretty good conversation the other night um, with Marley specifically and, and Lenny both. Um, as we were praying, we, we do a little, um, we do a devotional at dinner, um, and then we go to bed, get ready for bed, and then we pray before we go to bed. And um, um, I told Marley, I was like, hey, Marley, you know that I love you, right? She's like, yeah. And I was like, well, you know that uh, mommy loves you too. And she's like, eh, kind of, kind of, I don't know. And I'm like, well, why, what gives you the, the idea that she doesn't? She's like, well, I don't know. I just, you know, we've only been living with her for a little while and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, well, you can know that she loves you. And you want to know why? Because you can know that God loves you, right? That there is a love that God has placed before her physically, not even just what can be seen in nature, that God has provided for her a godly woman to look up to. God has provided her a home, a uh, 
food and things to nourish her. And I said, and all these things, and, and, and he's given us his word to know how we can, we can reciprocate that love, give it back, but also to receive. And as we're going to, as we press in forward, we see that there is nothing that we have done to even deserve this love. And in fact, we are the party that has been offending God. And God is the one who has been reconciling us. And so this conversation took a turn, and, and, and I told her that she can know God's love through his word, and that she, if she can trust God, she could trust Daddy, and she could trust Mommy. So the disconnect there is that she didn't trust that God loved her. And hopefully I was able to take a little bit of time and, and show her that, but I think our relationships with God are much in the same way, and we can see instances where that plays itself out. And I think Paul sees that, and that's why he's writing this. So, in knowing the gospel, are you loving one another with a love that was first shown to us? How hard, like when you think about it in this persuasive nature, how hard is it to persuade others to love if it's being lived out in a community of love. I think the song um, says it best, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, right? Uh, what is the presence of love in this room right now? I mean, if, if people came in, would they see a community that is a loving God? I think instances, yes. And I think instances, no. And I think that that's why this vision series, we are going through our identities and the identities that we need to, to pursue, and especially in the family. So you would think that this would be a simple task, but it isn't. It's hard. We would think it would be simple because we receive this reconciliation with God through the death of Christ. But, but, it's, but through the death of Christ, it now says no to self and yes to Christ. And that's the hard part because we have to give up a piece of ourself and say yes to Christ. And there's no room in here for cheap grace. This is why I can't understand how some Christians can come to the conclusion or convictions that they have when everything they minister about or the decisions that they make for themselves are not to self, are basically a no to self, a yes to Christ. But when we make those decisions and we have these different things that, that we want to minister about, oftentimes they are selfish. And we're saying yes to self and no to Christ. We are to boast only in him by way of his controlling love. So we are ambassadors of Christ, bringing the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of Christ, bringing the ministry of reconciliation. To be an ambassador of Christ, there needs to be a radical God-granting reorientation of our lives. This goes to the core of the heart, which the controlling aspect we already just touched on should be the love of Christ. The apostle uses the words no longer. And these are the words that the apostle uses at the end of verse 16, where he says, from now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So there are things about Christ that are no longer to be regarded. And we'll touch on this here in a minute. But I think we can get more clarification if we just kind of go to the next verse here. So let's read on. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
And I think this is the, the turning point here. This means that for the person who is now in Christ through this ministry of reconciliation, there are certain things that are no longer true. What are the things that are no longer true that once were true? Well, from the text, this person no longer lives for self, as we already touched on. This person no longer regards Christ from a purely worldly point of view. And we get that from we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So the old is gone, and it is replaced by his new creation, which has now come. This, reorient, this is a reorientation of our lives, just in general. This is a God calling, written in Scripture. This is, this is God's Word telling us what our ministry is. Have you ever wondered, like, what your life goal is? Or even the priority of your life? Or, or even what it should be? And for us who are in Christ, what is our ministry? What is it supposed to be about? We all want to know, what is God's will for my life? What's the next step for me? What's the best church for me? What's the best thing for my children? What job should I get? Why are we worrying about these things? when we are not doing what we know objectively we are to be doing? The answer is laid out for us. It is to be, minist- to be ministers of reconciliation. This reorientation of our hearts is lived first and foremost out in the family, the church family. The brother or sister you have sinned against to reconcile the relationships we have, we have to understand we are a new creation. And if you are not a new creation, reconciliation will not be possible. Verse 18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you are in Christ then you will be about the ministry of reconciliation. And conversely, if you are not about the ministry of reconciliation, then you are not in Christ. That's a bold proclamation that he is saying here. That's, that should lay heavy on our hearts. If we are not willing to reconcile, first and foremost, to God and live that out in our community... Either if we are in Christ, we're going to be about it, but if we're not, then there's potential that you're not in Christ. So all this, writes Paul, and he's referring to his now love-controlled life, his service of the crucified and risen Christ, his radical insight into his identity, all this summed up as a new creation is from God. These things, the subjective, the conscious results of being reconciled to God flow from the being of God into our hearts and minds through the word of reconciliation. Let's go forward. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And writing that God reconciled us to himself, Paul here is teaching that it is God who is the offended person and that man is the cause of this alienation. This is why God is reconciling the world 
to himself. So how did he do this? How could an infinitely holy, infinitely righteous God tolerate one sin that is infinitely against him? He did this by not counting our trespasses against us and entrusting us with this ministry, this ministry of reconciliation. We can see from the text that the heart and the soul of our responsibility is that God has called us to preach the message of reconciliation. Our duty is to preach that people can be reconciled to God. Paul here before was just contrasting who he was and who he is now in the new creation. Paul was seeking to kill Christians. Paul was a Pharisee. But now he has been turned because of this ministry of reconciliation to loving Christ. And by doing this, the things that we have done to wrong God have disappeared through Christ. God has reconciled him to himself through the work of his son. And and I think it is simply overlooked how beautiful of a message that this truly is, this ministry that we've been called to. And, And you can't help but think in our minds like, is that how reconciliation is supposed to look? Is this how our reconciliation is supposed to look for one another, even? Are we just supposed to forgive and forget? Is that what God does? I think the commentary uh, from Paul Barnett may help us in understanding what this reconciliation part looks like based on the biblical characteristic of God and his, uh, his character in general. He says, Because we are so frequently confronted with evil, for example, through the news, media, and television, entertainment, we easily become desensitized to its aberrant character. But God is not like that. Our sin offends him, it grieves him, alienates him. It cannot be otherwise. Reconciliation cannot mean the ignoring of human rebellion or the mere reducing of God's displeasure. Action was necessary. The divine disapproval must be removed. So how has God done this? God was reconciling the world to himself, the apostle writes, not counting men's sins against them, while God's reconciling of man to himself is expressed in the forgiveness of which this verse speaks of, there is, in fact, more that must be said. While God is merciful and forgiving by nature, he is, at the same time, the Holy One who cannot simply say to evil, it doesn't matter. Let's forgive and forget. Because we are human and comprised by our own sins, we may say that, but God, because he is God, cannot. Therefore, the statement that God does not count our sins against us is incomplete. Atonement, a means of removing sin from God's sight, is necessary as a prerequisite to forgiveness. God worked his ministry of reconciliation through the blood-bought sacrifice that bore the wrath against us. So I'm sitting here, like, while I'm studying, I'm thinking. After reading this and after reading the Bible and, and what Paul said, like, how can we even come up with the forgive and forget thing? I mean, I know we can forget things because we're human. God can't forget things. And I know that sometimes we have been hurt so badly that it's hard to forget. 
is the person who can't forget sinning? I mean, we are not infallible like God, but is a person who has been hurt so badly and it's, and it's hard for them to get past it? Are they sinning? Think it, it, I think if the person who, who can't forget sinning, I, I, I think it's the opposite of that. We are sinful people who do things for selfish gain. It's in our nature. It's what we do. And I think that it's why it's hard for us to grasp this, to grasp this understanding of the reconciliation that God has given the entire aspect that God would reconcile anyone, anyone, is beyond loving. But that he does it for many people, that is just too hard for me to comprehend. I want to encourage you to spend some time thinking about and reflecting on your life as a ministry. I think that often we will see that some of the issues we have with God and his word are a direct result of us not living out this mission. This mission that he has called his people to. His people and his family, the nuclear family, the church. This is what he called us to, to be ministers of reconciliation. So what does family life at renovation look like? Are we in general a people that long to seek reconciliation with one another and proclaim reconciliation of people to God? Or do we stew about situations? Do we aggravate situations in our heart? I know that personally I've had the tendency to to have things just kind of roll off me. Um, I know a lot of you who know me pretty well would probably say I'm pretty easygoing. I, I don't typically hold a grudge of, of anything, but I think in my heart um, there are times that it may just do in things until they're almost overwhelming, and instead of seeking reconciliation to the person I've wronged, I just sit there and feel sorry for myself. There have even been times in my life where I may have not even realized that I've offended someone in the first place. I could go around and, and offend people and not even realize that I have offended them. This is the nature of sin. Sin is so binding that we are blind to the wrong things that we do. It is foolish to continue and not seek reconciliation when it is pointed out to us, and specifically in this case, me. I'm not trying to get on a tangent, like I really could go for hours on this, but I would rather err on the side that I'm probably wrong. Just because I know my core nature, and that is to be sinful. And God knows that about us. God knows that we would not choose him. And that's why he created this ministry. That's why he gave us Christ, to reconcile us to himself. And how do we live out that ministry with one another? So this is not a light ministry. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's one that is bought and perfectly represented to us in the gospel. Like all biblical ideas, I mean... Christ did it first. God did it first. And we are to imitate that. The key here is that with this ministry, he tells us that we take some sort of authority with it. We have authority with it. Paul here says that we are ambassadors of Christ. So as we go back to the, to the verse here, he says that... Um, we'll go to 19, that is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, starting in 19. 
and entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is making his appeal through us. We are to encourage people on behalf of Christ to become reconciled to God. So, he uses the word ambassador, right? Ambassador. We all know ambassador coffee roasters, right? Delicious coffee. But we also know um, what it means to be an ambassador. And the first thing that I think of when I think of ambassador is, uh, my mom would appreciate this, a lethal weapon, right? <laughs> so, you have the guy there who has diplomatic immunity, right? That's like his thing. It's like Tom's like, he's like, oh, you can't touch me. I have diplomatic immunity. And um, so that's, that's a guy that Tom doesn't want to run into. But um, he has diplomatic immunity. He can kind of represent his country while being in a different country, and nobody can really touch him. Um, I am coming to find out that that's kind of a wrong view of an ambassador. Um, <laughs> the, the thing is, ambassador, he uses this for a specific reason. He uses the word ambassador for a reason. The title ambassador is not one that he just made up lightly. You know, in Paul's day, the ambassadors of Rome, what they would do is they would go into the lands that they conquered from their king who sent them or, or whoever, you know, they had... Uh, all sorts of different kinds of hierarchy of government there. But as Rome would conquer these areas, uh, they would send ambassadors to them. There would sometimes even be up to like 10 ambassadors. And their sole purpose was to instruct the citizens of these towns or villages of the rules and mandates of the king. That was their job. They had the authority to speak for the king in those lands. And Paul calls us ambassadors. I don't know about you, but I think it feels pretty cool to have a title and a ministry that God calls us to. This is encouraging to my heart, uh, first and foremost, because God has given us purpose and mission. All for the good of others, his people, and bringing him glory. It's set out right here. With any sort of title, though, I think, I think that comes with scrutiny. So be prepared for that. So you look at any po politician, and you will see people on either side of the fence either despising what they do or praising what they do. What do people see in you? Right? So let's flip it around. We carry this title of ambassador how are you being an ambassador? What do people see in you? What do people say about your family? I mean, obviously, these things are not the, the end-all, know-alls, but how would your ambassadorship be marred by what you say or what you do? Something to think about. Maybe even how many bridges to reconciliation have been burned due to your misrepresentation of the ambassadorship that has been given to you. Should lay a little bit heavy. So this title, this purpose, gives us encouragement. But it also puts a magnifying glass on us. And how we represent it is how we live out this ministry. This commentator said about this, as a foreign nation is judged by the behavior of its diplomatic representatives, so non-Christians often form their option of Christ by the behavior of his people. See what he's saying here? It is worth reflecting upon the fact that the means God has chosen to apply the gift of reconciliation to himself is as ordinary and human as it is. Since God makes his appeal through us, it is imperative 
that we have that we behave so as to bring credit to our master. The ministry of reconciliation cannot be exercised in a detached and cold manner. The language Paul uses is deeply emotional and passionate. Through us, he declares, God appeals to men and women, Christ implores them. This ministry can never be performed coldly or with a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. It's pretty, pretty heavy. We are representing Christ in this right relationship with God. That's what we're called to. That's what we are as ambassadors. We represent it with what we do. We represent it with what we say. And we represent it with our attitudes. And we cannot do this being detached or cold. Which I think would just, the detached or cold, I would just pin that on a lack of understanding of Christ's love when we act that way. So as ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of Christ. I think the next step is that we are to seek reconciliation with one another. This is done in the control of love in Christ. This is done rightly in the new creation, his redeemed people. And this is done by professing and proclaiming in word and deed that reconciliation to God is granted for all who come into Christ. This is done in humility And it involves words and lots of communication. And it means being willing to have hard conversations. I think the next part of this passage is probably my favorite. Um, After God redeemed me, it was the very first verse that I memorized. Go to verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's ambassadorship. When we're redeemed, we're called to it. And this is why, right here, this is a gospel message. For us and for our sake, God, he, which is said he, made Christ to be sin, even though he didn't even know sin. Christ was sinless, but God, for our sake, made him sin. So what does that mean? This means that the righteous judgment of God landed on Christ, even though he did absolutely nothing to deserve it. This is a cornerstone of our ministry. This is a Christian ministry of reconciliation. And I, and I like it because it gets even better. Not only <laughs> so, that in Christ, which is him, Christ doing the work in us, we just might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God when we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And if this doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. Because it blows my mind every time I think about it. So, in turn, to us rebelling from God and deserving the judgment due for our sin, God gives us righteousness. That makes no sense to me. And he also, on top of that, provides a perfect sacrificial atoning work for all his people. The sinless one takes our sin. The sinful ones are given righteousness of God. To sum it all up, the sinless one takes our sin in himself. The sinful ones are given the righteousness of God. And in light of this, I have no clue why it's so hard for some of us, even me. And I'd say even Christian people 
to seek to make things right with other people. God didn't even make a wrong. We made a wrong. And because of our wrong, he made it right. God is the offended party in all of this. So how often do we seek reconciliation when we are the ones who are wronged? Obviously, you can't forgive until you've asked to be forgiven. But you can have a disposition of forgiveness and a posture of readiness to forgive. I mean, how many times do you say to your your accusers even, like, in light of that, say your accuser comes to you and asks for forgiveness from you. How often do you hold out on forgiveness in your heart? You say, oh, I forgive you. But in your heart, you're just like, I just can't, I can't get over this. Our disposition and our posture should be ready, readiness to forgive. We as Christians are people who live in community and fellowship. This community and fellowship hinges on the gospel message and what God has offered through faith in his son, Christ. We will be able to reconcile relationships when we understand how extreme our reconciliation to God is. I think I kind of painted a good picture here of how extreme that relationship is, that God would do that for us. So I'm going to say it again. We will be able to reconcile relationships when we understand how extreme our reconciliation to God is. Through Christ, enemies can become friends. Friends forever. And it is possible. Friends forever. Right? God brought about in himself a ministry of love so powerful and so compelling that he could make enemies, infinite enemies, against a totally infallible God, his friends. This is what we need to be preaching to one another. This is what we need to be preaching to the lost. Paul continues here in chapter 6, where he is working with Christ then and and they appealed to us to not to receive well to not receive this grace in vain so he says here in verse 6 I'll just read it um, working together with him then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain for he says in a favorable time I listened to you and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And he's quoting Isaiah 49, 8 there. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time to be doing this ministry. Because today could be the day that someone's heart may be softened. And reconciled to God. Now is a favorable time to be doing this ministry because today is the day we can be reconciled to one another. Working this out in our church family, the relationships we have in this church, the identity we have as a family needs to be nurtured and held high. We need to make this a task. These people of the redeemed church will be the ones you will be spending eternity with. You guys ever think about that? The redeemed people of God are the ones that you are going to be spending eternity with. It's 
family. It's bigger than our blood family. It's bigger than our nuclear family. And there's a lot of weight in it because we're supposed to be in this family living out this mission. And Paul says, now is the best time to do it. So why do we waste time in fruitless relationships that have no bearing in eternity? It's a question that I thought about. And I'm not talking about evangelism, like seeking the lost. I'm seeking, I'm thinking about relationships that are creating disunity within the family and even between other people. Why do we waste our time on these fruitless relationships when the time is now? Today is the day of salvation. We get to represent the king of kings. So I encourage you guys, be a good ambassador. Be reconciled to one another, representing the reconciliation God has done for you. That's my encouragement for you guys today. I'm going to close with this because uh, John Calvin says something here about being reconciled. And then Matt's going to come up and pray. Calvin says, be reconciled. It is to be observed that Paul is here addressing himself to believers. He declares that he brings to them every day this embassy. Christ, therefore, did not suffer merely that he might once expiate our sins, nor was a gospel appointed merely with a view to pardon of those sins which we committed previously to baptism, but that we daily sin. So we might also, by daily remission, be received by God into his favor. For this is a continued embassy, which must be ostentatiously sounded forth in the church. Till the end of the world, and the gospel cannot be preached unless remission of sin is promised. Amen.